We've been doing that. I guess we need to talk a little more. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny too, because you guys got straight into it with that last intro. <laughs> like straight to the heavy stuff oh yeah yeah life is meaningless american decay the death of the american dream yeah <laughs> conclusion american decay uber Again. is evil Ca capitalism is evil american decay is going to be the thing that fertilizes our renaissance yeah um and we're coming for uber first we're first and foremost first first i honestly i stand by that let that let let the let the NSA hear that one, Emmy. What if we find out that like Uber is actually just run by an algorithm, where like oh, the CEO uh, is just like at the will of like the machine, of Uber the machine. Oh fuck! Oh god, that made me that gave me chills. Yeah, all he does is like maintain the machine, you know. That they actually already have a planet called Uber that they're trying to <laughs> transport us to eventually. <laughs> Yeah, it's just a farm. It just farms oh human God. organs. Yeah. Rachel Maddow is gonna uncover this. No, slowly. Rachel Maddow is in on it. Oh no. Chris Hayes is definitely in on it. Yeah. Um <laughs> yeah. Chris Hayes. Chris Hayes doesn't understand a goddamn thing. He's always so confused all the time. He is always confused all the time. He does kind of feel like the MSNBC, like Tucker Carlson, which is which is so much better. So much better, yeah. Objectively, but like, he like actually has good politics too. I think. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. Sometimes exactly. you get like a, a hint where you're like, "Oh, you get it," but also no, he does get it. But is that? It's just like, well, Tucker Carlson gets it too. That's the worst part, exactly. right? That's. I mean, I think that's why both of like anyone that works in corporate media like is, you know, a bad person because I, of I, that. I think the difference it. is that Chris Hayes is like snappy. So the stuff he can like respond and therefore be smart on the spot. And yeah. Tucker Carlson gets it, but like he can't call it up fast enough. So like, you know, mm -hmm. he has to be on his script. God damn. Yeah. Tucker Carlson has one confused looking fucking face. Yeah. That dude looks like he's about to like. I thought black people were free. <laughs> Are you telling me that they're not? just like tucker shut the fuck up dude <laughs> that guy that guy fucking sucks he sucks harder than i i mean i i would go so far as to say that that guy fucking sucks harder than any else anybody else in america like he's he's, he's number one on the list of guys who because suck. because because we talk about him like he's like the pinnacle of of like suckiness or whatever but his version of gaslighting the audience is 101 level right yeah yeah he like doesn't even try so I thought this was a free country. And, you, and <laughs> yeah. you're just like, man, people are like literally sitting on their couch going, me too. <laughs> like, fuck. This guy's not even fucking trying. Like, uh, he's just such a fucking uh, dipshit. Ah, uh, got it. It makes me so mad. He makes me so mad. Purely the tone is manipulative. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah you could not understand anything of the tone. And you know. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, did I ever send you guys that video of the guy who impersonates Tucker Carlson but no, talking about like so. his orders at Taco Bell? Oh, <laughs> oh my God, please. Talking about yeah, like a Taco Bell it. order send that it. went wrong. Okay, I'll, I'll uh, dig it up. <laughs> talk about, so talk about, yeah, content up my alley for 500. <laughs> Absolutely. He's, there's a, there's a Vonnegut quote. Um, it's from a, he, Vonnegut wrote a book like in the early part of his career about a, 
um, it's a memoir of a Nazi propagandist in a prison in Israel, uh, like wow. right after World War II. And he's like writing his like kind of like apology memoir. Um, and it, he, as he's writing, it turns out that he was um, like an FBI informant or a CIA mm -hmm. informant or something. And that he was obvious, he was like pretending to be a, a propagandist in order to right. get higher, higher up in the hierarchy to help right. the Americans. But he like the line that's most famous from that book that I think about with Tucker Carlson all the time is we are who we pretend to be. Because that dude, more than anyone I've ever seen in any media capacity, knows what he's doing is wrong. He knows exactly what he's doing. He doesn't believe a fucking single word he says. It's entirely pretended for the audience, for an audience and this like massive success that he's found. So it's like, mm -hmm. it's just, it's, it's so much worse than just being an ignorant asshole. Like it's so much right, worse than right. Sean Hannity. It's so much worse than Rush Limbaugh because that he knows better. You He's can a bootlicker in power. Yeah. Yeah, dude. He just fucking knows better. Oh, warm tongue from Lord of the Rings. You know, he's not, he's not Sauron. He's not all these other, he's just the worm tongue guy. He's just like, yeah. Fucking dude. worm tongue. If we see him, you better go. Hey, worm tongue. Hey, worm tongue. Getting really offended. Yeah. Yeah. Welcome to the Hegelian Friendship Simulator, the only podcast on the internet where we uncover the mysteries of the universe, one Wikipedia article at a time. I am joined by my delicious, delectable friend and co-host, John Miklas. Thank you, thank you. Uh, on the other mic today, as always, is the always insightful Alex uh -huh. Virgil. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. He called me delicious, so I you had did. to. Um, and then, of course, we are joined by our producer and NSA informant, Emmy Sack. I Good didn't. Morning. I didn't describe you, unfortunately. <laughs> I apologize. You good. You good. <laughs> we can uh, skip those adjectives. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, how we doing, guys? What's up? How's it going? How's life? Hey, it's good. I find yes. I find comfort in and power in my peers in the area. Uh, being in the same place of like stepping out into the light cautiously but optimistically, which is nice because mm -hmm. it's not just the reckless abandon of last summer that some people showed. This was more like a. Right. This is more like a. I feel weird about this, but I think we're okay right now. Kind of like. Right. I think this is okay. You know. It's gonna so be. Take... It's it's just gonna be hard. I feel like everyone is um, feral at this point. Like uh, yeah. we've unlearned all of our social, mm -hmm. like mores or uh, you know conventions. It just it feels weird being out. I don't. I don't like it yet. I don't know how I'm going to ease back into it, but can try. Some people are being really shitty about the adjustment. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. The other are day they? I was in 
State Street is like downtown, like all these shops and stuff. I went into Levi's and they have like a, they still have maximum capacity. You have to wear a mask. Like they still have protocol, but everything else on the street is just like no masks, people everywhere, no distance, whatever. And just everyone's like, why, like, why are you still doing this? Everyone's having fun outside. Like look outside your window. And they're just like, they're being so polite being like, Hey, yeah, we're a national company. We're still figuring out how to do this. You know, we're just trying to keep everyone safe and like, uh, I fuck don't know. you for keeping us safe yeah. read the yeah. room it's like I, that okay. that's such a hideous thing to say is like look at all, how much fun everybody's having outside yeah. like, that's so gross like, yeah we're like you sorry get the we're memo? a company like, yeah like yeah. people should be yeah. nice and kind and respectful but above all they should be fun all of yeah. this should be fun for the us. workers are just like i'm i'm 16 i'm getting minimum wage I'm yeah doing what I'm levi's. Told. i work at not just i don't just work at levi's i work at a levi's oh my god reminds me of yeah. that series of tiktoks from that guy that works at ikea have you guys seen those yes those yeah. are really that. Good. it's exactly that those are really good oh my god um do we uh do we have any unfinished business guys what are we talking about oh man what did we talk about last week all pirates all pirates all pirates just developing just developing yeah just we're just writing it we got like 16 scripts from this from this podcast that (laughs) all have a a title or a working title and nothing Mm -hmm. else yep some have like a very vague um what's the word uh you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The elevator pitch doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't go too far. It's a short elevator ride. Um, Virgil's uh, in the process of making a Bonnie Vare style album, and every song is about pirates. Ooh, that <laughs> when's that coming out, Virg? Oh, that'd be good. Yeah, Yo, that's an album I would listen to. <laughs> I know. That's an album that I would listen to on the trains in Tokyo in high school, feeling a little sad. It's like a Decemberist slash like, a little Bonnie sad. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah. That's so real. Yeah, I made a 2007 playlist that's just like all the songs I listened to on the train. And I was like, wow, I was not in a good. I didn't realize this <laughs> at the time, but I was not in a good place. Oh, yeah. Those train rides are the perfect place for existential melancholy. <laughs> oh, my God. There's no I, I mean, I've only spent a week there, but I don't think there's any place on Earth to be more lonely than Tokyo. It's the best city to be lonely in the world. It's the best city. It's the most modernist city of all time. That's yeah. why you still have Murakami writing modernist novels in fucking 2021. Right. You know? Yeah, <laughs> like, You're a awesome. hundred years late, but also it's still relatable. For- this is still working, man. Keep going. Yeah. yeah. It's not post, it's neo-modernism. Yeah, yeah it really is. Um, yeah, I, you know, I don't, nothing else to add. No notes on pirates. Uh, no notes for that episode. No notes. That's the better way to say. Yeah. Um, Verge. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And Emmy. Do you guys know what time it is? I don't know what time it is. Oh, we are bringing back a classic guys. Because it is time for ethnic enclave of the week. Nice. Um, was that racist you know enough? This actually <laughs> is an ethnicity that we've talked about before, but you will never ever guess where. Uh, this is a amazing. Um, we are going to talk today about Polish 
Haitians. Whoa! <laughs> yeah, the crossover Hell, event of the century. Hell, yes, we are. Um, Polish Haitians are primarily Haitian people of Polish and African ancestry, dating to the early 19th century. A few may be Poles of more recent native birth who have gained Haitian citizenship. There's a small village about 45 miles from Port-au-Prince, the capital called Kazale, and that's considered the main center of population for the ethnic Polish community. Uh, Kazale has descendants of surviving members of the Polish legionnaires who joined the slaves during the Haitian Revolution. Oh, cool. Some 400 to 500 of these Poles are believed to have settled in Haiti after the war. They were given special status, status as Noir by um, Jean-Jacques Dessalines, who is the governor general and emperor and full citizenship under the Haitian constitution. So wow. Polish legionnaires came and fought in the slave uprising in Haiti and the governor general declared them black because you had to be black to live in Haiti after the slave revolt. So uh-huh. the Poles just lived in like Polish Haitians are just like a community that exists. Yo, in Haiti every part of, of this. I had the coolest mistakenly so assumed cool. in the most like stereotypical assumption that it was like a like, oh, maybe after the war. You know, Haitians, because they understood certain things, like gave them some space or something. This is so much more empowering. Yeah. In every way. I love this story. They, so they were. Especially uh, the declaration that they were black. Sorry. I have to. Yeah. It's so cool. They, so they, so the history behind it is that the Polish Legion, um, which were kind of like, you know, conscription fighters or, um, yeah, like, you know, um, trained hired guns basically were sent over by Napoleon um, to suppress the slave rebellion and mm. the Poles, they were kind of hoping to gain independence from the partition of their nation by Prussia, Russia, and Austria. Mm-hmm. Um, after they arrived and began to be thrown into battle, the Polish platoon learned that the French were trying to suppress a, suppress a rebellion by enslaved Africans. Um, in Poland, uh, they were fighting their own independence, and they were uh, many Poles were seeking union amongst themselves to win back their freedom and independence by organization and uprising. Um, a lot of Poles died uh, during this this uprising in Haiti, and so surviving Polish soldiers admired their opponents and eventually turned on the French army uh, and joined <sighs> the rebelling Africans. Um, yeah. And this guy, interesting, has great name, Vladislav French, Franciszek Jablonowski, who was okay. half black, was one of the Polish generals, but who died soon after reaching St. Dominique. Polish soldiers are credited with contributing to the establishment of the world's first free black republic and first independent Caribbean state. Just fucking awesome stuff. All right. We have 17 scripts in development now. <laughs> this, this is exactly. amazing. This, the, I mean, the scene where like the Polish, like cool Polish characters, legionnaire characters, see what's happening and discuss the betrayal and their turn is already a film classic. That's, yeah. That's such a cool moment. Uh, and so, yeah, the other thing... 
uh, is that a lot of in like, uh, you know, fast forward to the 20th century, a lot of Haitian uh, leaders were mm -hmm. black nationalists mm -hmm. and had these like pan-African views mm -hmm. and they made sure to, they called the Polish, the white Negroes of Europe. And mm -hmm. so like in Haiti, Poles have always had like honorary black status, even not just <laughs> the Poles who defected, but even Poland as a country, they're, they're like, I love often that. called the white Negroes of, of Europe by, right. by Haitian presidents. I love the use of these terms to mean yeah. the opposite of historically a group. That's like kind yeah. of why I love the declaration of them being black as, as as being so antithetical to every other version of that in history that I've heard. Yep. Where like if if the Haitians are saying calling you white Negroes, like that's the honorary title, you know, like that's the Dude, it's not, Haiti is it's a not really, derogatory. I love that. Haiti's a really fascinating place too. I mean, yeah. it's, you know, we know it today, I think primarily because of the amount of like just absolute turmoil and dysfunction. It's humanitarian crisis central. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, it's just been, it's just been a disaster and both because of corruption, natural mm -hmm. disasters, but yeah. essentially since the slave rebellion there's been a systemic emphasis on ruining haiti as a country by yeah. white colonizers of for course. 200 years they have essentially tormented the country of haiti mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. because they they won you know like it's the yeah. only slave revolt that ended up with a new country an independent country and so they they have you know white white Europeans and Americans now too have made sure to emphasize that for the last 200 years, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's just- And there's not even really an economic reason either. You can't even hide behind like this, the, the workings of the system, whatever, like blah, blah, blah. This is just an ideological, like white- It's supremacist yeah. attempt. It's just torture, you know? I mean, it's just yeah. racism yeah. and subjugation. I mean, it's just- it's yeah. the hierarchy at work, right? And and, it, and that the yeah the frustrating thing is that like the 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 rebellion that happened in Haiti was probably the most like pure, like even being you know that that was the age of revolution, right? That that all happened. It was the same right. time as the American and the French Revolution, but like the Haitian Revolution was the most like I think the most kind of subversive and exciting of that entire mm -hmm. era in the in the sense of like what it meant and what possible yeah. the amount of like the the idea literal freedom that came out of it right and this and this idea of like okay anything could happen and mm -hmm. i don't know i mean it's one of the great tragedies of modern history that this is where we're at this is where haiti's at right you know mm -hmm. it's just absolute it's so frustrating, right? But yeah, the, the this is really cool. I and I I would say I think I eventually will read more about the Haitian Revolution as a whole because I think there's a yeah. lot of stuff we could talk about. I think um, we're unpacking it over time in a nice organic way. Yeah, yeah. I feel like it's come up before. I can't remember in what context, but we definitely have talked about it.
Yeah. Well, because because the Haitian Revolution really was like, you know, I think in the, in the educational narrative, it's the third most important revolution of the time. Right. And I think the reason for that is because it's the best revolution of the time. Right. And as we're autodidactically like breaking open history for ourselves, we're realizing that there's a lot more connections to the Haitian Revolution in one way or the other. Yeah. Within our own historical narrative. So I think that is the revolution to like, that is the revolution around which all other revolutions are compared. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, it's the one, it, and I, I know I used this word already. It clearly was the most subversive. Right to the ancient regime or like to the old order the the closest to the real kind of revolution as opposed to the other kind that we don't completely flipping the the higher like literally we, yeah just you know destroying the, yeah the, the systems of power we as uh, a podcast recognize two types of revolution and we like one and we don't like the other yeah i think if you've listened long enough you can probably suss out you can yeah you can get that yeah. one get to the bottom of that one yeah um so yeah there you go uh kazale haiti is now um added to the the hfs road trip yeah. you know totally tour. pound for pound favorite ethnic on like in terms yeah. of like the the trajectory of it favorite ethnic enclave i agree with that yeah um all right hell yeah that was great. Ethnic enclave of the week. Nailed it. Yeah. Um, who's going first? It's me? I think it's me. You. Yeah. I'm up. All right. We're, I'm just, I'm, and again, not many tabs today. I just got one tab. Uh, oh, yeah. It is a doozy. We're going, we're going to talk about some history. Oh, um, yeah. We are going to Constantinople. <gasps> In 532 AD, Ooh. during the reign of Justinian, who was also known as Justinian the Great. We've, um, we've uh, danced around this era before. We have. So, yeah, I mean, this is this is the, um, the post-Roman Empire. This is when yeah. the, the Roman Empire is now being essentially ruled out of what is now Istanbul. Um, mm-hmm. And is uh, ruled by the Byzantines, yes. um, who kind of were the heir to the Roman, you know, throne, if you will. Um, yeah. And wait, what year did you say? Five thirty-two. Okay, so this is four years before the worst year in history. Ah, yes. For context. Yes. For context. And yeah, and the worst year in history did fuck up the Byzantines pretty, yeah, pretty yeah, bad. Yeah. So yeah. This is like right before. Um, so we're going to talk about the Nika or maybe Nika riots. Okay. Uh, which I think I might have been pulled onto this page via some sort of like Wikipedia aggregator. Um, it's a pretty interesting okay. story. So it's very possible that I, I did not come up, come find this organically, but it's worth talking about. Um, right. the Nika riots, Nika revolt or Nika sedition took place against Emperor Justinian in Constantinople over the course of a week in 532 AD. They were the most violent riots in the city's history, with nearly half of Constantinople being burned or destroyed and uh, roughly 30,000 people killed. Wow. So in a week. 
in a week. Yeah, that's the context. 30,000 people died in this riots. Yeah, geez. And um, so the thing that's super interesting about these riots is that they erupted because of a sporting event. Um, so <laughs> was it Dodgers versus? Uh, yeah, it was Dodgers. Giants Giants. Or... Yeah. So extremely popular in um, Constantinople was the sport of chariot racing. Hell um, yeah. And then the Roman and the Byzantine empires had well-developed associations. They were known as Dems, D-E-M-E, which supported different factions or teams of chariot racing. There were initially four major factional teams of chariot racing, differentiated by the color of the uniform. Um, So there were blues, greens, reds, and whites. Although by this time, only the blues and the greens were prominent. Uh, or had any so, so these are like essentially like clubs, teams, and organizations. Yeah, okay. this is this is almost to a T a football hooligan riot. Like um, this is exactly it's exactly and and to the point. Um, so Justinian was a supporter of the Blues, and um, he had been. So the context is that he had been. Um, pretty unpopular during this period he had levied a bunch of taxes um and they had this like i don't know if if you or our listeners are are super familiar with this era but the romans and the byzantines the thing that kind of separated them from what they called the barbarians was Mm -hmm. super duper confusing law code that's like essentially the reason that rome was an empire and not Mm. like just another grouping of people in right. uh, you know this era was that they had a like really really intricate and super complicated law system um so um they justinian had like done a bunch of changes to the the law codes um and there uh there was legitimacy with the emperor successfully made significant legal reforms um, but the process bogged down, if the process was bogged down, people almost read that to be like an act of God. So there was like, like this law code was super important, but also there were like these religious components and, and mm-hmm. intricacies to it, where it was like, the, it was just a part of life, especially for the aristocracy in Byzantium. Um, uh, and just before the Nika riots of January 532, the pace of reforms had slowed to a crawl. At the same time, Justinian was fighting an unsuccessful war against the Persians, while Byzantine victories at um, a couple places had fostered his legitimacy. He had a really bad defeat at Calinicium, or Calinicium, uh, a negative strategic situation damaged the emperor's reputation. Um, on top of that, the legal reforms were unpopular with the aristocracy, and they made it impossible to use obscure laws and jurisprudence to avoid unfavorable verdicts. Um, so, in fact, like the context of this moment was that, as a leader, Justinian was having a bad, bad go of things. It was yeah, just yeah, like, yeah. He was just approval in a bad, rating is low, right? Low, now. exactly. I mean, he was, yeah, yeah he was George H. W. Bush. It's yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. the Persian Gulf just, war is not working. He said he everything he taxes, does is raise taxes. Just yeah. keeps fucking 
Um, yeah. Plus, he was a supporter of the fucking blues. You know, he's like, it, oh, I know, I know. Boo. Y'all know. This is a green, the green team podcast blues. for sure. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. So this is, this is dope. Uh, on January 13th, a tense and angry populace arrived at the Hippodrome for the races. Uh, the oh, Hippodrome yeah. was next to the palace complex. And thus, Justinian could watch from the safety of his box in the palace, which sounds dope. Like, I would have loved yeah. it. If I could go back in time, I would potentially go, like, just long enough to see this, this riot start. Because, like, the, mm-hmm. the setting sounds amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would not stay, though. I think I would... No. go somewhere else after that Thirty thousand um, in a week because of a sports riot is yeah. chaos is <laughs> so nuts that's a terrifying amount of chaos um f- okay so from the start the crowd had been hurling insults at justinian by the okay. end of the day at race 22 the partisan chants had changed from blue or green to a unified nika nika meaning win victory or conquer and the crowds broke out and began to assault the palace. For the next five days, the palace was under siege. The fires that started during the tumult, tumult resulted in the destruction of much of the city, including the Hagia Sophia, which Justinian would later rebuild. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's actually kind of a weird, like, I'm sure that there's more history to it. And uh, this yeah. page is not like not super complete. But yeah, it, it essentially... Um, uh, what happened oh i missed one part too i'll go just backtrack okay, okay. real quick and say that um the year before um some members of both of these these teams blues and greens had been arrested for murder um uh, and so the, and there had been like limited riots after that uh mm-hmm. and then justinian executed these guys and Actually, that was three days before this riot. So January 10th, two of them, a blue and a green, escaped. Um, They escaped. They were taken refuge in a sanctuary of a church surrounded by an angry mob. And then they were executed when they were caught. So that kind of was like the powder keg at all. He And he he was indiscriminate about it. He did both. So both the blue and the green team was just not happy with Justinian. Um, Yeah, and they fucking burned the entire city down. If fucking Biden was just like, I'm going to kill Mike Trout, Tim Salmon, uh, Adrian Gonzalez, and Corey Seager, <laughs> all of all of California would be fucking pissed. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, that's a good point. I mean, that that is like the context. I think that this is a really interesting like topic in the sense that yeah. All of the things and the core cultural values are slightly different than they are today, but the context is so relatable still. Like you could completely just transcribe this situation that happened in Constantinople in the year 532 into our modern day and understand all of the machinations of why it happened the way that it did. This is an Iannucci movie. It's an (laughs) Iannucci sports politics movie well and also the other thing is that um there's like some good context about how justinian's wife uh who is theodora Mm -hmm. justinian wanted to flee the city he was like we gotta get the fuck out of here and she she essentially told him only pussies uh you know flee she was just like we're not we're not leaving 
uh, it's better to die as a king than escape as a coward or you know, that kind of shit. And yeah, 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 yeah. Just just I, called him a baby back bitch. And and he, <laughs> he went along. It actually worked out well for him. I mean, she is the protagonist of this movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She is. It oh, this is amazing. Like the movie opens with just like Nika, Nika. <laughs> yeah. And then fade into him in his box, looking down on his people. Yeah, as they're about all Giamatti just... looking ass, you know, just fucking schlubby, yeah. like mm, you know. Yeah, and Olivia Coleman next to him being like, yeah. "Only pussies right away." Yeah, and then, she and she, then the people so climbing said, over everything. She said, "Who is born into the light of day must sooner or later die." And how could an emperor ever allow himself to be a fugitive? That's a fucking all-time line. That's a great wow. line. I think that we would still in the movie transcribe it to only pussies run away. Or maybe after that, somebody would. There would have to be some conceit where that line is said. And then also fuck you pussy is, is equated <laughs> yeah. to it. You know what I mean? Like oh that. Just, just the most degrading. Just like. Uh, I already didn't like you. Yeah. For a while. Oh man. Yeah. So I don't, yeah. I mean, this is a, this is a pretty short one, but it's a, it's a good little story. And I just was I love so it. caught off guard. Like just, you know, how on the side of a Wikipedia article, there's like the, the fast stats. Mm-hmm. It just says casualties, deaths, 30,000 rioters killed. Jesus. Cause that, Oh, that was the other thing is that at a certain point, the, the, um, like Justinian and the army just got sick of it. And so mm-hmm. they just, the soldiers just went into the Hippodrome and any of the riders were, they were still there. Didn't matter who they were. They just started killing them. Killing just them? killed them all. Dude. That's brutal. I mean, that's some, some fuck, fucked up shit. That's talk about a civil servant. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when January 6th happened, there was half of me that was just like, Oh, you animals. And the other half of me being like, you fucking, you guys are the sheep. Like half of the, right. half, you aren't actually doing anything. Right. Yeah. You know what I mean? Imagine if that week was like, was like this for a week. Yeah. Oh my God. That's like terrifying. Even terrifying. as someone who, who is completely unrelated to that version of the anger. Oh my God. Yeah. That's not fun anymore at all, you know. <laughs> it's not a, that's no Adrian's kickback. This is not Adrian's kickback. That's the thing. Is yeah, I think it would be fun. I'm sure it was fun at first when they're all just like right. screaming stuff at just yeah. like, and then as a blue asshole. As a blue team like and then fan, somebody yeah. Like, like partnering <laughs> yeah. up with a green team fan and yeah. being like, yeah, like fuck off. And then you start breaking stuff and you're like, okay, this is fun. And then I don't, I wonder when it, that switch happened where it's like, yeah. this isn't, dad, can we go home now? This isn't fun yes, anymore. Seriously. <laughs> oh my God. I can see my dad in that moment. Like I can see him turning to me and being like, I think we should leave now. Yeah. <laughs> I respect my dad so much for just that, just that being the guy that can be like, we should go. Yeah. I'm getting happy a little Father's bit of a Day, Pete. Happy Father's, <laughs> yeah, Day, happy Father's Day. Yeah. <laughs> oh my so god um yeah that's the, the story of the nika riot byzantine hooligans yeah i Just can't it up. process how many people were killed in that like it's so right? i keep trying to yeah. wrap my head around it and especially like you know now we have how many like 
over 7 billion people on earth. Right. That's right. still a massive number. It's, and like back right. then, way less people. That's a huge number or a huge portion of the population just that's, gone because of a riot. I mean, I I wonder what we could probably find this. Let's see if we can find the population of Constantinople. Yeah. It's interesting because it also the number the number hits the hits an interesting sweet spot of incomprehensibility for us. I guess 30,000, it's like a stadium of people on like a decent showing day. But like millions of people dying in the Holocaust, we have innately misunderstood probably because we can't understand it. But like that number has lived in us. Right. And then the idea of like a yeah. handful of people dying in a single event is also like something we understand. Yes. 30,000 because of a week long riot is like... That's like a small town or like a small fraction of LA, like hard to comprehend. It's weird because I can almost, I can feel the tragedy stronger if it's just like three people who die. Because then you can actually picture each of them and their lives and like how sad it is that they're gone. But then when it's a number like 30,000, it's just, it becomes like a statistic because your brain Like back to January 6th, like Ashley (laughs) Bobbitt, right? Is the woman that got shot. It's like, we remember, we know her. 30,000 is a large swath. It's, it's, uh, it looks like the population of Constantinople was like low estimate 450,000 people at that time. So that's a percentage. I mean, that's like a percent. Yeah. That's crazy. 8% or something. 8% or something. Yeah. That's big. What would that be for us? Millions? It would be 8 million. Yeah, I mean, let's let's like oh, no. the city of Los Angeles is fourteen million, more. so I don't know, uh, hundred forty thousand, right? Like, yeah, yeah, just like in a week because of that. Yeah, crazy. I'm curious what the feeling of people out after that. Like, I'm sure there's everyone felt differently about different things, but like, that would be. I would love to. I think. The only way we can find that is like looking for the next big event. And I'll I'll, I'll do some yeah. research. I'll try and find the next. Well, like, I mean, uh, short short four years later. Short four years later. Yeah, everyone was all hell forgot about loose. that riot. Yeah. yeah, that riot was just a moment for them. Crazy. Just a moment in time. Crazy. Hell yeah! All right, today we are looking at shape-shifting fun this is a a little bit for me a little bit for everyone you know and of course of course the angle is uh in mythology folklore and speculative fiction shape-shifting is the ability to physically transform oneself or others through an inherently human ability superhuman ability divine intervention demonic manipulation sorcery spells or having inherited the ability yeah yeah so yeah the main reason is you know a couple of couple couple friends and i were talking about the you know we were like talking about a show like a possible show idea and and the idea of shape-shifting came up and i was wondering like shape-shifting is one of those ubiquitous concepts in folklore and mythology why right why is it everywhere I don't have the answer aside from it's like a good metaphor. Right. 
but the page has some great you know it, it lays out where they've come out of yeah um, in a lot of so uh let's kind of get into it um, yeah, popular shape-shifting creatures in folklore are werewolves and vampires in mostly in western and interestingly new world native american origins mm. um and then there's more of that like kitsune you know uh stuff in east asia and then you get gods goddesses turning into things what are um, kitsune again they're like fox spirits oh okay yeah um i guess fox fox is the closest uh animal Are, is and that's japanese yeah that's is that japanese. like a, so, is that like a prominent cultural thing still like or it, has that become kitsch it's interesting it's it's like folklore it's a folklore mainstay mm -hmm. it's been co-opted in the past decade or so by anime fans and like weebs so recently I've seen it come up the most and almost exclusively in video game and comic mm -hmm. spheres. But it is interesting because Japan, China, and Korea all have their versions of that story and they're slightly different. So there's an episode, there's an interesting episode of Lovecraft Country. Oh, sure. Which deals with the main character's time in the Korean War. Hmm. And it's it's a it's a kumiho, which is the Korean version of the story. It's like a kumiho story. Um, are they scary? Like, are they in folklore? Are they like, will, will yeah. they eat you? Like, is that part of it? Depends a little bit, but the kumiho specifically in Korean lore um, is it shapeshifts into a woman hmm. and seduces and kills men. Interesting. Um, the the interesting narrative caveat about it is that the kumiho wants to turn into a human, and uh, and 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 once she collects a hundred hearts or a hundred livers from the men she's seduced, then she gets you know the curse or the spell is, uh, and she becomes lifted a human? or whatever. Yeah, she becomes human. So so the episode huh. is really interesting because it it has to do with Western imperialism. The comfort women or women being the women right. of that space being used um only as sexual objects yeah and this woman who was uh uh raped when she was a child gets cursed with this and so it's about kind of like the 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 emotional disassociative patterns that develop out of child abuse interesting and her thing is she's trying to be human again but the only way she can do that is to continue to have sex with these uh, all these men but in getting closer to turning human obviously she like can't reconcile she, yeah. her past yeah, yeah, with yeah. what she's doing you know so it's it's, yeah, it's yeah. ultimately a sexual like assault narrative but it's a crazy episode but that's the kitsune kumiho and that's that's actually pretty similar to like um isn't you might be getting to it, but there's another like folklore of a woman who turns into a dolphin and wants men mm. to like so uh like go into the water like right like yeah you know, attracting so men into the water that's one thing i noticed is a lot of disparate cultures have that thing of like a seal or a dolphin mm -hmm. or of course sirens 
yeah dragging men into the deep and i do think that originally or at least broadly that is the metaphor for uh sexual the male sexual aggression um being the thing that drags drags the soul down into the depths into the hmm. abyss you know interesting um, is my is my general take on that trope because it comes yeah. up in celtic culture greek you know everywhere i feel like that also bleeds into like that idea of like sexual women being like manipulative and evil right and, like you know mm-hmm. where it's like oh they're they're like shape-shifting <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah you know just like luring us in to like get what they want from us but well yeah and, you know, and that's so much totally of- a narrative that's been so many Jacket. cultures and in history, like marriage is not, or, or like a relationship between a man and a woman is not necessarily about, it's like a transaction, right? Right. Like marriage yeah, yeah. is specifically about the amount, the money and, and cult, different cultures have different ways. Like in certain right. cultures, the, the, the groom is providing money as a transaction to the bride's family in Mm -hmm. others like dowry cultures the bride's family is giving the groom money for like take you know and so but in all of those the the thing is the same is the idea that the woman is just like property and and that it's a transaction that can be done and so yeah i would understand it makes sense that a story would develop in those cultures about the idea of chasing after a woman based on something besides like the simple transaction would be, you know, not, it would, it would be bad. It it would break the culture apart. Right. It would, it Mm -hmm. would. And so there's, yeah, there's obviously a reason why that those stories develop. I, one interesting thing is I wondered if we had been misinterpreting those stories for a while for, which came after my witchcraft realization, Mm. um, which is like, you know, I used to think which I used to think the simplicity of the super, male superiority of witchcraft was just like stupidity and we hate women and stuff. And then I didn't realize that there was actually an autonomy from the woman's perspective, the idea of messing with hallucinogens and like going out into nature and stuff has its own entire thing, right? Right. So and, and Medusa, the story of Medusa is interesting because there's elements of that where it's like we always saw it from the perspective of the Argonauts and Medusa was just one monster, you know, right. representing some, some distraction from the path of light, whatever, like, but the character of Medusa has so much more autonomy as like a tragic figure. So I wondered about that. Yeah. And I don't, and I, and with the pulling under the water, I think it is kind of just like as simple as the temptations of the flesh. Um, but some interesting little moments of mythological uh, shape-shifting. The Titan Metis, the first wife of Zeus and mother of the goddess hmm. Athena, was believed to be able to change her appearance into anything she wanted. In one story, she was so proud that her husband Zeus tricked her into changing into a fly. Um, that sentence is very interesting. I think you would have to read the story to understand what that means. Um, he then yeah. swallowed her. She was a fly. He then swallowed her because he figured, fe- feared that he and Metis would have a son who would be more powerful than Zeus himself. Oof. Right? So he's like nervous. Zeus, man. Zeus is like such a little fucking 
twerp. The worst, dude. The, the worst. worst character in all mythology. Um, which I kind of love that it's just like, oh, the patriarch figure is actually like the biggest piece of shit. And just not just in like a haha, yeah. it's such a you know, lady killer or whatever, but like Yeah, it strikes me that there's gotta be a that there is a lesson there that was even yeah. contextual even in that moment. So so in this, so in this, so Metis, however, was already pregnant as a fly inside of him at this moment. She stayed alive inside his head, hmm. built armor for her daughter. The banging of her metalworking made Zeus have a headache. So he's now struggling. Yeah. So Hephaestus. Am I pronouncing? I never know yeah. if I'm pronouncing that. I think it's Clove, Clove his head with an axe. Athena, his daughter, female, with a uh, sprang from her father's head, fully grown in a battle arm, in battle armor. So I'm like, oh, this is some like Jungian shit, you know? Yeah. It's a metaphor. All right. So here's a different one. In one tale, Demeter transformed herself into a mare. Oh, this one is just kind of like weird. Transformed herself into a mare to escape Poseidon, but Poseidon counter transformed himself into a stallion to pursue her and succeeded in the rape as it rape. is read. Yeah. Yeah. Rape. There's yeah. a lot, there's a lot of shape shifting and rape in western mythology there's this there's this goofy tv show um man seeking woman i love uh, that show it, i love it too i highly recommend but there's an episode where for every whatever reason there's like a two-minute intro on mount olympus uh, and it's mm. like it's, it's like cupid uh mm-hmm. and it's um it's Yorma Tacoma, yeah you know and, yeah and and at one point he, it's like they're they're doing an intervention for him because he's like is super into like cocaine and, and <laughs> yeah, being a DJ or boy. something. That like um, lonely island and he pop goes, star character. Yeah, he goes uh to Zeus, like, what about you? What about that time you turned into a bull and you raped that lady? Or what about that time you, you turned into a swan and you raped that other lady? <laughs> it's it's there's so much and it and and it's always shape-shifting involved and i'm like yeah i don't get it yet i'm nervous yeah. of the moment i go oh <laughs> yeah. oh well yeah. i mean i guess there's like maybe i don't know this is maybe too too modern of an interpretation but mm. like there is like a certain trope of a mm-hmm. man transforming himself to like the kind of perception of a you know like trying to trying to change himself in order to sleep with a woman like you know mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. manipulate a situation by by becoming someone that is different than him right but i don't and I, I think at the time and i necessarily think, know i th- i agree i think it's and at the time you know especially in a time when humans were understood to be above animals it's the idea of devolving into an animal to do that right right you know, yeah, the, the, that's a good point. the lizard, the way we would say it is your, your lizard brain takes over, you know, you're thinking with your dick, which is yeah. like representative of the animal side of you, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Um, here's, Lizard's so then, also a big shapeshifter with politics, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like world leaders being reptilians. Absolutely. This is that shit but, where it's just like our society has muddied the lines between metaphor and reality. Mm hmm. Yeah. I love, and you know, I imagine you might hit on some, and if there are mm. examples, please share. But like, 
I love the like when we when it kind of challenges what we normally would think of like all right she shapes shift into a bull and so you expect this kind of characterization but like in other cultures it could be a completely different characterization yeah you know? I love totally. that totally um the bull the bull is always interesting especially in Greek stuff I think um okay so I followed it up with a nice one uh nice. As a final reward from the gods for their, uh, hold on, sorry. Uh, as a final reward from the gods for their hospitality, Bacchus and Philemon were transformed at their deaths into a pair of trees. So the story hmm. is, I think Zeus and whoever his wife was at the time or something, um, they go to a city and and uh Bacchus and Philemon were an old married couple who were the only ones who uh welcomed the gods oh it was Zeus and Hermes never mind it was Zeus and Hermes um but they were the only ones in their town to welcome disguised gods Zeus and Hermes thus embodying the pious exercise of hospitality Hmm. and as a reward when they died they got to live on as a pair of trees Um, I like that that's nice yeah I like that too, which is interesting because a lot of hell imagery from Greek Roman through like Dante stuff, um, becoming a tree in your death is like a, a punishment for suicide, which is interesting. Oh, yeah, but you're like kind of a rotting tree in like a desert. Of- it strikes me that it's like indicative of of like you know the concept of the second death that we've talked yeah. about, right? That like to be to be a good host means that you will be remembered even after your death for your hospitality. Like they, you and people would be like, oh, Bacchus and Philemon, weren't they wonderful hosts? Like, I like that. And that's kind of the, like the, the literal interpretation of, of becoming trees is like your memory is safe. That's cool. Um, all right, here's, and then now, now here's another one I pulled out, which is a weird one. Yeah. Um, in Lokasena, this is a uh, Viking Nordic mythology. Oh yeah. Odin and Loki taunt each other with having taken the form of females and nursing offspring to which they had given birth. So they prank each other by getting impregnated by animals and then raising it. Cool prank, bro. Yeah. A 13th, a 13th century Edda relates Loki taking the form of a mare to bear Odin's steed Sleipner, which was the fastest horse ever to exist. He also took the form of a she-wolf to bear Fenrir. So I guess it's like, oh, your favorite animal? Well, guess what? I'm its mom. <laughs> Bitch. <laughs> Dad. God damn. It strikes me, I don't know a lot about Norse mythology, but I feel like Loki and Odin do a whole lot of sucking and fucking, man. They're just like they do. all about, but like in weird ways, much more and like, it's like good for trans, them. Uh, transfigurative than like, yeah. like Zeus is just like really just like gross, like a lot of yeah, rape, yeah. just throwing his dick around. But like Loki and Odin, yeah, kind of. A little kind more 60s, kind of 70s. Yeah. Yeah. Just yeah, a little yeah. a bit more free love. Yeah. 
I mean, I will say, like, conceptually, that brand of prank does hit, like, the funny, my funny bone. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah, my prank is that I gave birth to your favorite animal, you <laughs> bitch. That rocks. That's yeah, awesome. Um, so then there's a lot of other countries that have their own versions of the story. It tends to be either some form of liberation, if it's from within the person's desires, or punishment obviously for having done something that is seen as less than human yeah but my my interest initially when i came into shapeshifting was the navajo skinwalkers and stuff hmm. so i'm kind of like i like hearing about other parts of the world for mytho you know mythology stuff but yeah like pan-american you know first nations like mythology to me is like it has something to do with our land so i think it's it's more yeah. The skinwalkers, the like they've got red eyes and they're really lanky and like they'll call your name. I might be mixing this up with a different <laughs> no. What what's a skinwalker? I... Yeah, explain first. <laughs> the, sa- oh, yeah. the safer way to word that is uh oh what's a skinwalker? <laughs> um, <laughs> in Navajo culture, a skinwalker is a ha- a type of harmful witch who has the oh. ability to turn into possess and disguise themselves as animals. The term is never used for healers. Um, so I just thought it was a coyote to be completely honest. Bad. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, <laughs> kind of like, you're kind of right. It's just like the trickster kind of bad. It's never a good thing. Yeah. And they do essentially like, I wouldn't be surprised if what you're describing at me is exactly that those specific descriptions don't come up in this page. Yeah. It's um, honestly is probably a different creature, but there's a lot of people talking about like in especially in the Appalachians, there's yeah. like these like characters that they call skin or not skinwalkers. I don't know what they call them, but it's they like, like they have red eyes. You're not supposed to look at them like directly, but they'll like call your name or like make like baby cries. So you like come out there. Uh, I've heard oh, of this. So okay, so and I think that is, and it would make sense that it would be big in the Appalachian region because that sounds like some Scottish or I, Scots Irish mm. stuff like mm. banshees I think are kind mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. along oh, like sense. I'm pretty sure banshees are the one, are ones that in folklore like would make the sound of a crying baby um, mm-hmm. this is I what know. I love about American gods is specifically the concept of the new world gods being remixes of old world gods yeah um, which is cool. I thought in, when I think of that area, I think of Kentucky goblins only really. What are Kentucky? I may, I've yeah, I'm not familiar these. with them either. I love that. I wasn't, I didn't immediately go into it because I was nervous that I had already spoken extensively about this <laughs> in the podcast, <laughs> but I haven't brought it up yet. So in the Southeast region of the U S there's like expansive cave systems. Yeah. Like, I don't know how deep they go. I don't know whatever, but like the descent, right, is like set yeah. in that area. And the whole the the big thing about it is that it's it's expansive and it covers multiple states. And in the like late nineteenth century, early twentieth century, as that area was being like more, you know, not just settled, but now had like folk tales and stuff. There were a bunch of stories of creatures abducting kids or people or whatever. And people, witnesses would draw these 
but the same drawing would show up in completely mm. disparate areas that are only connected by these cave systems that at the time weren't even mapped out fully, you know? Whoa. Oh. Well, that is a story, right? Yeah. Now, now could someone have traveled blah, 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 and like, you know, telephoned these stories? Sure. But I do think it's cool that it's like all these different random spots suggest one giant expansive cave system where there is something in there collectively yeah. or one creature. So that's gonna I mean, I, I am, I don't know. I mean, we will never know anything that is quote unquote supernatural to, right. to exist because if it, if it was confirmed, it would not become natural. But like, yeah, exactly. Would it even be considered supernatural if it doesn't have any? Yeah. The, but the, the fact of the matter is we don't, we don't know enough. And so like these like kind of contemplations on the supernatural, I think that just by the law of averages, there is inevitability that like there is some somehow some truth to some of it, mm -hmm. you know, like. The, it, yeah, that's why I like the Kentucky Goblins specifically is because there's nothing hokey added to it other than the possibility of it just being unidentified creatures that live in this area right. they don't do magic like the only thing they really do in their interactions is abduct children you know? <laughs> yeah yeah they taste good yeah yeah like mothman on the other hand is just like some like benevolent just a creature or some shit yeah it's a half yeah, no, man a dude half moth. Suit. yeah no nah, kentucky goblins yeah. is like a possible species which is why i, like I um I will admit that I think Bigfoot is real. I love that. I, I do want Bigfoot to be real. I really do think I I feel like that, like that something like that is is the end case truth to it. I don't know. The thing I think my favorite thing about Bigfoot is is um the people that like slash believe slash want to believe Bigfoot exists love Bigfoot. And they all kind of represent the same kind of like love and acceptance for yeah that you know what i mean like it's it's they, they're they're convinced that it will it, it, the missing link right that it will explain right. it like yeah. life is so complicated hard it doesn't make sense if we can just find bigfoot like mm -hmm. he'll tell he'll explain it all you know what i mean like there is definitely some like magical realism yeah that. and unlike most things i like it's the people that like it that drive it for me <laughs> Cause it's all like Pacific Northwest, like kind of eighties, nineties vibe, like granola yeah. people Did, who are uh, very like, analog. Yeah. Yeah. Who are like, I have a Bigfoot story where the only thing I did was like respect its boundaries. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Hell yeah. Where it's like, Oh, so you just like assumed it was real. There was no like exploratory. My dad has those yeah. stories, which I think is why I like it. Yeah. I like... am in the sweet spot of like believing nothing, but entertaining everything. Mm -hmm. So I'm like open mm -hmm. to all these stories. I love it. Is it real? Maybe, but none yeah, of it's like maybe. definitively real. But that you know, that's what all that is. It almost like, doesn't matter if it's real, know. right? Like that. That's exactly. kind of, um, and that's part. Of, that's I. You know, to bring it back into your topic, Verge. Like mm -hmm. these stories are clearly mostly um, educate, like didactic somehow, like right? educational. Yeah, right? yeah, and they're and and that's what matters like what matter doesn't quite matter if you get all the details right as long as you get the essence of it yeah
So and it's all kind of a work. Like it's there's different there's different sources that have different details. You know, like that's the mm-hmm. cool thing about folklore. Yeah. So you know what's very interesting specifically about the Navajo Skinwalkers is that's the that's the specific shape shifting I wanted to deep delve into the most. Yeah. But uh, let's see. The the legend of the Skinwalkers is not well understood outside of Navajo culture. Wow. Mostly due to reluctance to discuss the subject with outsiders. Whoa. Traditional Navajo people are reluctant to reveal skinwalker lore to non-Navajos or to discuss it at all among those they do not trust. Now, okay, I'm going to read a quote quote from Adrian Keene, who is a Native American academic writer and activist from the Cherokee Nation. Um, What happens when Rowling pulls this in? Oh, okay, so this is regarding... Uh, J.K. Rowling's website that had the world wizard <laughs> shit that was like, it was garbage. It was absolutely Oh, yeah, garbage. yeah, 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 totally. Yeah. It was fucking um, racist garbage, yeah. Yeah, like the ja- the East Asian Japanese area for wizards was a bad translation of just the word magic place. But like not even grammatically correctly translated and that was like in Harry Potter lore and it's like Fucking terrible. Yeah. Fucking slipping. Um, yeah. So anyway, regarding skinwalkers as introduced by J.K. Rowling, what happens when Rowling pulls this in is we as Native people are now opened up to a barrage of questions about these beliefs and traditions, but these are not things that need or should be discussed by outsiders hmm. at all. I'm sorry if that seems unfair, but that's how our cultures survive. So that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, just being just generally being a little bit conservative about the dissemination of that information in a preservational way. But the way this page is written, it kind of feels like this is a specific thing they don't talk about. And it's understood to be bad. Yeah. You know, you would think that if it was just kind of an allegory, you know, for moral story, there wouldn't necessarily be reluctance. I don't know. I don't know. Well, I know in some folklore like this, there's also a reluctance to talk about it because the idea of you saying it um, Mm -hmm. like pulls it closer to you or like it brings attention to you specifically, which may not have anything to do with this in particular. But I know a lot of them have that sort of element to it where it's like, okay, don't talk about it because the more you focus on it, the more it's going to like attract its attention Mm -hmm. to you. I like that. Yeah, and it it also does. Yeah, that that's a great point, and it, it it tends to like all of this kind of quote unquote supernatural stuff mm-hmm. is um, in some capacities, and actually just like all cultural dogma at large, it's a it's a it's a state of mind, right? So mm-hmm. like you know, we don't actually think that, or I don't actually think that when you, you know, uh, when Catholic mass happens, Jesus's blood and, and body are in the sacrament, but like Catholics do. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, and so there's a certain level of like kind of magical thinking um, Mm -hmm. 
that it's just it's just about perspective it's about the prism it's not it's not actually about like well the truth of the matter and so right. i could totally see this like this is real to these mm-hmm. people because of their culture and their history like this whatever it is and whatever it entails is real enough and yeah. so there's there's a certain level of yeah of of, of privacy and protection to that mm-hmm. uh and the culture of it all it's very interesting it is interesting. Yeah, I would I would definitely rank it with the same as like Jewish elders being very um, not particular, but like uh, precious about the observances and understandings of their traditions. Mm-hmm. Um, keep it secret, keep it safe to a degree. Yep. Also, yeah, you can't blame any Native Americans for trying to hide anything from anyone ever again. <laughs> right, exactly. It's <laughs> like, yeah. we know anything where this goes. Yeah. 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 And also just like Western idea of like having to like dissect everything scientifically. Right. You know, where it's like, right. we never asked for this attention towards this. Like, just let us have this. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. There's a great line in um, the new, like the the TV adaptation of The Stand, um, Stephen King's The Stand. Oh yeah, like, you know, like uh, Whoopi was in it and stuff. There's this one character who's um, a Native American woman, and she's in the Good Crew, and she goes on she goes on the trip to Vegas to go, you know, whatever, do do stuff. But basically, they get lost, and then they all, you know, all these white guys look at her, and she's just like what you think because i'm native american i'm like a tracker and they all kind of look at each other and they're like maybe well, well yeah you know can you and she's just like ah i mean of course i can but like yeah you know <laughs> fuck you guys and i was like yeah that's where I, that's what i understand it's like in our current you know society non-christian non-white people do have to feel a certain amount of preciousness about their own abilities and cultures because yeah the observance of it from an external party no matter what it is is just like ugh. yeah and they need to be precious of it because they have a culture you right. know that's the big thing is that like yeah. we live in a a world with this like um uh, amalgamated mega like hegemonic like mega culture that is bland Mm -hmm. and is supposed to suit everyone uh and therefore it is scientific and it's not magical it's not supernatural it's very real and it's frankly very ugly and boring Mm -hmm. like our culture and so it's yeah no it's a it's a it's a protection of a sacred thing I did not think we would kind of uh, get to the bottom of why I don't like talking about anime and stuff with, (laughs) but like we got to the nugget of it. Like this is why, like this is why anytime anyone brings up anything, even if I love it and grew up with it, my reluctance to share my experience about of it. Yeah. Cause I just know they won't understand. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 Wow. I totally like, I consciously understood the Navajo uh, approach to this. And you helped me get to the to the finish line. Oh, uh, the uh, yeah, the finish line. Anyway, that's yeah. kind of, I think that's kind of like the substantial. I think that's you know, a good that's a good ending point too. I feel like yeah. that's uh, we 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 got we got to the core of why why you brought up this topic in a, in a good way. So mm-hmm. I'm into it, uh, and this has been a nice 
moderately long episode. So I think we'll, coffee we'll, we'll say goodbye. Yeah, good coffee app for sure. Although I did crack yeah. a beer towards the end. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I um, my coffee the whole time. Cool. All right. Well, hey, thank you, folks. This is, again, the Hegelian Friendship Simulator. You can find us on social media. You can email us at hegelianfriendshipsimulator at gmail.com. And, uh, you know, tune in next week. Thank you for listening. Thank you. Adios. Adios. Love you.